All right, so here we are. Welcome to episode one. Well, episode two. See, I already messed up. Episode two, but reading one of Foundations of American Law. And I'm here with Joe Miller, who's a colleague of mine at the law school, professor, teaches IP, a bunch of stuff, smart guy. We have a podcast together. So this is an ordinary ground for us. This is an ordinary position for us, but a different set of topics. You know, sitting across the mic from each other, I mean. Oh, Joe. yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so I just wanted to kind of prepare people for the conversation that they're about to hear. This reading, the first reading, is in some ways very straightforward in that it just kind of marches through some the basic organs of the United States government at the federal and state level. And the conversation we're about to have is just meant to kind of provoke some thought, you know, ideas in you and just to get you to kind of think about why things are designed that way. We're not really going to go through and talk in detail about each organ in the United States government in the same way that we do, that I do in the reading. Um, yeah, the reading does a great job of laying things out. We just want to have a chat about it. Yeah. So I would say this to the students. If you have particular questions about what's laid out in the reading, you know, write those down. Come to our discussion with those questions. And if anything that you hear in this conversation causes you to think, huh, I wonder why it could, you know, could it be otherwise? Or, or, or That's an interesting problem. I hadn't thought about it. Like, can we talk more about that? Come to our discussion with that. Our discussions are going to be about like answering your questions and trying to take things to the next level in kind of the same way this conversation was, right? Where we, we start with the readings as a, as a grounding, and then we kind of talk about some ideas that, that that causes us to have, right? Yeah, they spark thoughts. Yeah. And we want to talk about them. Hey, Joe. Hey. So I was a little bit surprised. Why were you surprised? That the reading for the first session did not include Judge John Hodgman's settled law principles, (laughs) since it seems to me this is a fairly straightforward way of just covering the entirety of the course. Referring to the world-famous podcast by John Hodgman. Yes. Well-known. Judge John Hodgman podcast. Actor and provocateur. Yes. Which students should listen to. I think we could do a whole course with just Judge John Hodgman. I have no doubt of it. We could do many. Yeah. He's a, he has a fake internet courtroom. It's a, it's a real internet fake courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's beautiful about it, the reason why I'm actually saying it is because I think a point you make in the reading about it, at one level, the simplicity of law and its underlying principles yeah. and there being a sort of core set of common sense propositions that can through lots of different recombinations and lots of, uh, uh, various elaborations of nuance uh, upon those common principles. But there's at the core, there's actually a fairly small number of fairly straightforward things going on. Okay, so this is... And I think his, the way he approaches dealing with his funny cases, Mm -hmm. it's he knows very well what they are, even though he hasn't had legal training, and and he explains it very well. Well, that's that's what law is, right? It it is people talking to each other, explaining, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road, where you have to solve problems because people are fighting. You have to come to a resolution. You can't, like a scientist, sit back and say, we're going to wait for the data to come in. By the way, should we say this is, uh, this is our first episode? (laughs) Sure, we can say that. We can Uh, say that. So, yeah. You can do a pre-roll later. I, I, well, this is actually the second episode because the first one is, is welcome to the course. Oh, okay, cool. So this is, this is episode two, but this is the, this is the, uh, this is the episode that goes with the first reading. Mm. The first reading just kind of like, here's the American legal system. Yeah. Breaking it down into a few things, which we'll get into. But but I like the way you've started this, Joe, because it it, it sets up, you know, my, I think many of our, uh, who are in law, beliefs about law, which is that it's, in a lot of ways, it's like, 
it, it, there's, there's a how to doing it, right? You're trying to learn, like, how do I do law? And, and it involves a lot of the things that you would think of naturally, just as a person trying to solve problems in the world. Just yeah. trying, when you think about a dispute and you think about fairness, but then you can be fair to this person in that way, but this other person in that way. And then maybe there are larger things, like we've got this big plan, and even though it's a little bit unfair to this person to do this particular thing, we've got this larger plan that we have. Like, right. this idea of kind of hierarchy of plans and fairness to individuals and achieving things efficiently or well. And coordinating things in a world where one of the very basic facts about the world is that not everyone always wants to do the same thing at the same time. Right. And if the world were such a thing that everyone always wanted to do the same thing at the same time, <laughs> right. there would be a lot less law. Or different things that didn't interfere with each other. Sure. Yeah. Um, but that's not our world. We have a lot of people wanting to do different things at the same time, making different calls on the same resources. Right. So there's conflict. There's coordination and lots of cooperation, but there's also lots of differences of opinion and differences of view and differences of experience and preference. And that means there's conflict. And you've got to manage that conflict. So that's what we're in trying to do. In some way. Yeah. And we're trying to build up. This class is about building up some intuitions with some 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 serious tools, some, 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 you know, high firepower tools Absolutely. that are typically used by lawyers and legal thinkers and judges so that, you know, the end product here, the deliverable of this court, I said this court, boy, I'm trying to elevate us, Joe. <laughs> the deliverable <laughs> of this course, I think, is, is for the students, for you guys listening, to be able at the end of it to listen to a Supreme Court oral argument or any court's oral argument, really, to, to read an opinion and to be able to say, okay, I get what the tension is here. I get why people might disagree about this. And so even if I have strong political beliefs about, you know, whatever it is, about, you know, democracy, fairness, justice, libertarianism, take your, take whatever ism attracts you or you think, you know, you're politically affiliated with. But building that kind of intellectual empathy where you can understand why people might disagree and where you can even take it to another level and say, yeah, this appears to be about a disagreement at the kind of a base level of politics. But there are kind of higher order institutional principles at work here. Right. And so we're going to try to build up those tools. That's what we're going to try to do here. And, and this first reading, I think in order to get started with this at all and start reading cases and getting into it, we need kind of a baseline level of, of kind of common parlance and under, basic understanding of the American legal system, which sure. is generalizable to lots of other legal systems. And so I, 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 want, I thought what we could talk about today in this episode are just some basic principles involved in the sure. American structure of the American legal system and, and then anything else that kind of came to you as you read it that you think might help the students in, in kind of chunking this material in their minds okay. and thinking about it. Um, and, and for me, I think two big themes here, right? It's the separation of functions among legal institutions into different kind of categories. And, um, but as we'll see, they're severely overlapping in those functions. And then separation in terms of scale. You know, there's the national government, state governments, local governments. So we can... So there's a horizontal and a vertical. Horizontal and a vertical. When we think about ordinary governments, and we'll get maybe later into how this applies to other kinds of, uh, other kinds of cooperations, but, but when we think of ordinary governments, a very common kind of horizontal uh, distribution is this legislative, executive, uh, judicial breakdown, right? That there's somebody who's who's making laws, there's somebody who's executing laws, and there's somebody who's adjudicating fights under those laws, right? I, I mean, think if you thought of it globally, the most common actually would be that the executive and the legislative are very intertwined and interrelated. Uh, and I'm speaking here, obviously, of parliamentary systems. Like the UK. Correct. Or Germany or France or, I mean, there's many, very Spain, there's many variations, but I think the, the most common, globally speaking, 
the most common form of government is not ours. Right. But it's actually but one he, where the executive and the legislative, yeah. the executive is a subset of the legislature. But even there, even there, there's usually a prime minister or some right. entity who has an office. Correct. Where that person is also a member of the legislature, but they also, there's some dialogue with the legislature, right? There's an office which is doing things and yep. they're held to account by the legislature. There's some closer connection. Yeah. But you can still like conceptually see there's this division between execution of laws, making of laws, and yep. adjudicating laws. Yes. And especially in the taking the first two and breaking them off much more uh, carefully from the third. Yeah. Uh, the adjudicating. Yeah. Right? Applying laws in a particular dispute to particular parties who have a complaint one with the other. Uh, but, but the executive and the, and the legislative, and, they're, and of course they're very closely intertwined here too, right? Yeah. There's legislative oversight of all the things that the executive does. There are different executive departments, but they're all regu- in regular communication with one another. Uh, there isn't the same overlap, I guess, in personnel, right? It's not the same person who is both the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the United States. Not yet, at least. <laughs> right. Whereas in Parliament, right, uh, the Prime Minister it, it is a member of the Parliament, as well as the most important of the people holding an executive office. So episode one has gotten off to a great start. Where in my effort to kind of simplify things and highlight the basic features, we've already complicated it by talking about other legal systems. You, you ju- it's just that you said it's a very common form of government. It is, and, yeah. and I think our our form of government is it's very common. Across the United States, looking at the fact that the states resemble the national government a lot, yeah, uh, and that there are some other countries that have very strong uh, presidents as well as strong legislatures. France is, I think, the primary example. Um, but but our form of government is 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 one of the things that makes it more interesting and special in a way is 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 how unlike most others it is. Well, this is we'll pick up this topic again in episode two when we talk about Marbury versus Madison and how a lot of what you know, the students should think about this, not to be blinded by what we already have as covering the field of what is possible. Right. That uh, yeah. sometimes it's easy to say, well, this is an obvious way to and I kind of started this way by saying this is a very common form of division. And you can see even these other systems right. as divided in this way. But we shouldn't be blinded in terms of the separation of powers that we have, the design that right. we have as the only form of government. And as we'll talk about with Marbury, right, yeah. things could have gone very differently. And, and as, in terms of the functions that you identify, I think they, I think you're absolutely right that that is well not universal. Uh, the, the recognition that there is, you know, a, fu- a legislative function writing general rules of, that are forward looking. Mm-hmm. And, and there's an executive function, which is taking those general rules and trying to apply them in, in some systematic way uh, to particular affairs. And then there's adjudication, which is when people disagree about what's going on in the other two locations in some fashion. And so bring an, a, a specific dispute to, to an independent neutral adjudicator, right? right? Those three different things they have are, to happen. Are, are the core things that right. have to go on. They have to happen in some form. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very common to kind of individualize in institutions, each of these functions. And so, you know, and, and that's what you mean by horizontal, right? That, that, it's it's the basically the same kind of governmental apparatus divided into institutions which are communicating and carrying on these activities at the same time. So for us, it's the it's the Congress, and this is at the federal level: the Congress, the President, and the rest of the executive branch, and then the judiciary. 
which in the Constitution, as I point out in the readings, is established by Article 3, and it basically establishes only the Supreme Court and then gives Congress the power to establish inferior courts, courts of appeals and, and district courts. Uh, so that's what you mean by horizontal, right? They're all kind of this, this basic function of the government to, to, in order, uh, to adjudicate disputes according to law is divided among different institutions, which are all kind of cooperating and sometimes in tension. The other dimension that you used was vertical, right? A very common way of dividing yeah. it up. There's this vertical separation of powers. The one thing that may be a little bit, just like horizontal separation may be a little bit deceiving, and it makes it sound more hermetic, like more divided than it really is. Yeah, yeah. So to the, the vertical um, metaphor, like the federal government is at the top and then down below that are the states and down right. below that are the locals, it makes it sound... A, more separated than it really is, and B, more hierarchical than it really is, right? That the federal government is at the top, and we have the supremacy clause in the Constitution, as the students know from the reading, which says that federal law is supreme, uh, and the states are, therefore, you might think, hierarchically inferior to the federal government, and they are in some respects. But it is not, just as the horizontal separation is not nearly as clean as it sounds, at least conceptually, the vertical separation isn't as clean as it sounds. Well, certainly not, uh, because the states are given uh, roles and responsibilities uh, that are denied to the national government. Uh, and so there's a sense in which the states are more powerful, not less powerful. So it, it, it makes more sense, at least within the, the U.S. tradition, to to take your horizontal and your vertical understandings and then say, and in addition, there are different topics that are better right. put in one place than another place. So really understanding how all these institutions are operating together. And it's sort of like, you know, those, those desserts that are like, there's some pudding and then there's some cookies and there's some whipped cream and then there's, it's like a trifle or something like that. You see these desserts? No, I, don't, I don't know what you're Usually put about. them in the clear bowl so you can see the layers. So if you take one of I those desserts. you're thinking of like a jello pudding, Joe, a jello mold. Oh, uh, no, don't do that. No, I don't want no jello mold. No. Um, <laughs> so you got your, yeah. you got your layers, yeah. right? If you, you got took, a layer cake. If you took that yeah. dessert and you put it in a paint can mixer for a few seconds, <laughs> right, that's reality, which is that you got the layers, but it's also been mixed up a little bit. Right. Like the person clearly fell down the stairs at the end as they're carrying it so, out to people or whatever. So as I point out in as I point out in the reading, a lot of the law, if you, if someone who's not been trained in the law at all and hasn't studied it much, but you know, lives in society, a lot of what they think of as the law is probably state and local law. You know, your Tri- murder statutes, your uh, criminal laws, your contract disputes are governed by state contract law. Almost everything is state law from the perspective of an individual who's just thinking about you, you, right. what you law? encounter on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Got to go get a driver license. That's you. You're going to the state motor vehicle mm-hmm. office of some kind. You got to, you know, uh, pay a ticket, a parking ticket. That's a local ordinance. Right. Um, yes. What and people encounter in their daily lives for the most part yeah. is, is state and local law. A lot of the constitutional design is kind of freeing up the word or giving Congress the power to solve national problems, right? National problems and kind of, problems at the level of international affairs, um, um, but coordination among the states and, and other problems which, you know, states may not be equipped to solve on their own. But a lot of like ordinary criminal law has traditionally been left to the states. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the paint can has been jumbled and there is a lot of federal criminal law now. There which is. a lot of people think is not a good idea, like federal drug laws. So the paint can has been jumbled, as you say. Joe. Um, and we see that in criminal law. We even see that some in family law, which is another traditional, um, a traditional state topic. Contract law, traditional, you know, states say what a valid contract is and, and when it's unconscionable and when they're going to be enforced and when they're not. But there is federal law about arbitration of contracts, yeah, private, true. 
private alternative dispute resolution kind of techniques where the federal government said, you know, if you want to do it that way, you can do it regardless of what state law says. And you began by referencing uh, this idea of national solutions. And one handy idea that people may have encountered or you certainly use as a rule of thumb to get started in, in your thinking about it is you ask yourself, well, why would there need to be a, a quote national solution to something? Well, think about the different kinds of problems there can be and think about one dimension of those problems is uh, where are the effects felt, right? Where, ha, this thing that's going on, where, what other people does it affect and where are they? Mm-hmm. Are they living in the same state as you or is it diff- or a different state from you? Are we talking about something where there's a lot of things that cross state lines? When that's the case, any individual state isn't going to perhaps be able to fully address the issue. Think about the same thing with two towns that are nearby, right? Maybe there's an issue that affects them both. It's hard for any one of those local town councils or city governments to fully address the problem unless they can coordinate. Well, one way to coordinate multiple governments is to establish a higher level of government that coordinates for them. And give it authority over those coordinating problems. So, you know, air pollution, maybe traffic, uh, maybe two towns which share a bridge across a river and have to coordinate over this bridge. Maybe it's about uh, establishing a common dump. So if right? you think about effects and, and yeah. who might need to cooperate together to work, a, work through those effects and coping with those effects and the disputes that those effects generate, that you're well down the road to thinking about why there might need to be uh, higher or lower levels of government instead of just having a single level that deals with everything, right? Well, that's probably not the most efficient way to go about it. Well, let's, let's go a little bit more systematically through a couple of these divisions. Okay. Um, I think these are nice kind of general principles to get the students just thinking about, like, why would I, and and if you want to, if you're asking yourself listening to this, what should I be taking from this, like this discussion? I think we're just kind of opening up the, giving you the freedom to use your imagination about, like, if you were designing a system, like, how would you design it? How would you divide up institutions? Why would you do it that way? You know? Law is often concerned with these very basic questions. Absolutely. You know, you think there's a lot of it, and every question must be settled, but... A lot of the questions that become that come before the Supreme Court even today are surprisingly basic in their character, right? It is this question of like, why would we divide it this way and that Absolutely. way? Absolutely, and, and we've already mentioned three of the most important things that that people would use on a regular basis: functions, effects, and institutions. Yeah, institutional competency and what they're good at, and you yeah. Know. Well, let, let's let's talk about this. So, um, I you know in the in the reading, I do I try to introduce systematically, you know, fe- feds and states executive, judicial, and legislative, right? right? So you've got your six boxes. Yeah, kind of your six boxes. And then there's also local governments and, you know, independent agencies, and there's all kinds of other stuff going on, right? So it's a little bit like a, it's a little bit like a galaxy, right? Where you've got right. your stars and your planets, but there's also this other weird stuff out there, right? So, uh, so there is some other stuff, but I think getting a mental map of just these basic institutions is a good way to get started. So let's talk Congress, Joe. Mm. You know, Congress is designed with this kind of, not kind of, but this bicameral design where you got two houses, right? The difference between the two houses, and let's put aside the slavery compromise that led to the the way that the Senate is designed and other things for just a second, right? Right. Because there may still be good reasons why you would want to have two houses today and you'd want them to be represented differently. Yes. And it's, and and that's quite, that's analytically distinct from deciding how to pick the members of the two separate bodies. But just you, you can decide to have two separate bodies that serve for two different lengths of term. Yeah. And that's separate from the question, how do we pick who's in each of those bodies? We have two different bodies, which each have to agree to do something, right? So the, the, the framers not only divided powers between 
the executive, judiciary, and, and legislative branch. But within the legislative branch, they divide power further. You have to get two institutions to agree in order to do anything. And then it has to be signed by the president, so you right. need a third. But these two institutions, the House and the Senate, are there are different numbers of members in each. They are different in their representation, meaning they represent different groups of people. So House members represent relatively small districts compared to whole states. Yes. Senators represent an entire state. Yep. House members serve for two years senators term, for senators six. for six. And in, in the modern day, a two-year term means that you're always running for re-election. Yeah. The day that you come in, you're making phone calls to donors and you're... So there's a different dynamic to the way you think about your job as a House rep right. uh, than, say, senators who have at least some luxury of time before, um, right. before election looms. The other thing about the national legislature, the Congress, is this, this idea of enumerated powers in the Constitution, that Congress is, is not given, as the states are, the, this quote-unquote police power, the power to pass any law in the interest of the general health, safety, welfare, morals, right? This is this residual basic power that a state legislature has, and the Constitution purported not to touch, right? So if you want to pass a law about littering, the state legislature can do that, right? Right. Um, there's no enumerated power in the Constitution giving Congress the power to prohibit littering in any part of the United States. I mean, maybe federal lands, of course, there's that power, but with respect to a state's property or private property within a state, there isn't a, a power in the Constitution which says, you know, the Congress shall have the power to prevent lit- to prohibit littering, right. whereas there are a bunch of others. Not in those terms. Exactly. No. Well, I wanted to get into that a little bit because <laughs> each of these assumptions, enumerated power, so Congress has limited powers to legislate. Here's what you're good at. Here's what you should do. Leave the rest for the states. Uh, we're going to um, uh, divide up your legislative power into two houses, which are represented differently in, in order to prevent powerful interests from just taking over everything, right? They have to kind of take over two different kinds of legislative bodies, which might be harder. In a sense, all of that has been a failure. Failure. Hmm. I don't know what the criterion for success is. So I don't <laughs> I'm, being know. A little, I'm being a little bit provocative here. I don't know whether it's a failure. Par- it's par- certainly. Partly, let me just say this. Partly I, because I want the students to be, I'm being provocative because I want the students to be critical here, not to take for granted what we have. And there's a sense in which this original constitutional design about cabining Congress and about dividing powers between the two branches so in order to ensure that it's public interest litigate, legislation that makes it through, publicly-minded legislation and not narrow interests which are able to make it through. In a way, both of those kind of backfired. And I don't, I don't know how much we want to go into this now because we're going to have more readings later about this, but, okay. go, but go ahead and t- tell me what your thought was. Then. Well, my, initial, my, my immediate thought was that this set of institutions was established um, more than 200 years ago. And it, much more importantly than the number of years is just the, the world that existed then and compare it to the world that exists now. And so rather than saying that something had failed or succeeded, I might ask if I were sitting down and writing on a fresh sheet of paper today, <laughs> yeah. in today's world, if I wanted to accomplish certain objectives and knowing what I know, about the world, how, what might I do? And I think it's fair to say n- very few people would come up with the design we have mm-hmm. for our national government mm-hmm. if they were starting with a fresh sheet of paper. But of course, we never have a fresh sheet of paper, right? We get these institutions, you know, wh- why does the Constitution look the way that it looks? We're talking about the legislature right now. Why have two chambers in a legislature? Well, it, it, surely... Some of the influence of that was the, the experience of the English government, 
which was a government pattern that many of the, although we were trying to make important separations from that, we were also drawing on that experience and tradition, right? House of Lords, House of Commons in the British Parliament. Um, so, you know, you, you, it's like Faulkner says, right? The past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Okay? You wind up reusing a lot of the things you're familiar with. So in the late 1700s, they set up these institutions. Um, it has proved remarkably robust on some dimensions. You know, if you reverse that Faulkner quote, the dead isn't past, it's not even dead, you get kind of a, a zombie kind of thing. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, it's been remarkably robust in some ways. Of course, it, it, it required fundamental alterations as a result of an internal civil war in, in along other dimensions. That's so, one sense in which you might call it a, the original design of failure. Right, right? and, and indeed... the bloodiest war in the history of the nation. In, and we don't have the original design anymore in that sense, right? It yeah. was fundamentally altered by the by the Civil War Amendment. So, which we will cover later. So I think success and failure, maybe that's just too blunt a set of and categories. We have the Great Depression. And we also have the rise of public choice theory, which we'll cover later in the course, right? right. This idea that that kind of maybe counterintuitively by dividing power between the two houses and making them each yeah i don't know if it's dividing but it's basically creating two veto points rather than just one for for right. legislation you got to pass a piece you got to pass the same piece of text through both houses right and you might think well that means that in order to get something through it's really got to be in the public interest because you got to line up one set of representatives and a different set of representatives right yeah but it, it turns out that it might be counterintuitively <laughs> exactly the opposite, right? Indeed. It's the only stuff that um, uh, that kind of uh, that benefits narrow interests that has the energy to make it through both houses. Yeah, to put it a little differently, it takes a great deal of focus and energy, right, to manage this process and navigate it successfully to conclusion. Who's likely to do that? Who's likely to have the energy, the focus, the initiative, the resources? to manage a process this complicated with this many veto points along the way. The person who's likely to manage it or the persons who are likely to manage it are the ones who are most benefited concretely and directly by what they are suggesting. Yeah. Because they're going to be have an easy time identifying themselves, their own interests, identifying the fact that they share that interest with a few other people like them and that they can easily together coordinate their efforts and successfully navigate this very complex process, right? Who's not likely to succeed? <laughs> generally, so this is all a rule of thumb and generally speaking, but yeah. generally speaking, people who don't realize they're affected by that issue, uh, who so therefore the, it's harder for them to recognize one another. Their interests are smaller, more diffuse, right? And so they're, they're probably not likely to realize it's even happening, much less that they should be participating in to it. To make it a little concrete, if there's somebody who's going to make you know, several hundred million dollars, a small group of people who each will make several hundred million dollars off of a change in policy. And the burden of that policy burdens, I don't know, tens and tens of millions of people to the tune of about a buck, right? Or, right. or $3 or, you know, a slight increase in taxes or a decrease in a tax benefit. Then that small group has a real leg up when it comes to navigating this very complicated process. Right. Because a large group, there's not much incentive for me to spend a lot of time sending out email and joining together with my fellow citizen over two or three dollar a tax uh, uh, increase or harm of some kind just because it's going to be harder for me to you know it's just not worth it and it's not worth a bunch of people getting together and telling us about this unless we create mechanisms for that to happen right. so that that's a very brief kind of intro to kind of the the, the counterintuitive anti bicameralist argument mm. and there, there are others but um right. so let's leave that there for a second and just talk about states for a second sure. on this side so states 
have basically the same model except for one, which has a unicameral legislature. Instead of Nebraska. That's right. But almost all have our same bicameral system. Do you, you know, maybe this is worth pointing out in discussion. I remember one of the concrete policy prescriptions that Jesse the Body Ventura ran on hmm. in the state of Minnesota. You remember when we had the wrestler governor? I, I do remember that. Was unicameralism. For that state government? For that state. Under the theory that one of the ways that the public was screwed over by legislative policy, two different bills get passed by the House and Senate, two different versions, and then they send it to conference committee. They send it to some committee, which then kind of reconciles the two. It comes out with a consensus bill, right. which then goes out to both houses, which pass it with a lot less debate, if any debate mm. at that point, right? What he said was that it is in that kind of cigar-filled room of conference committee that real policy gets made. This is kind of, this was his, you know, yeah, I, that that doesn't sound terribly interesting or persuasive to me. I mean, in the sense that, look, ultimately voters have to hold responsible the people who they send to to do that job, and whether it's you know in a in a committee hearing or re- voting on a conference uh, committee report or whatever the mechanism is, there there either will or won't be public accountability uh, because people are paying adequate attention. So I don't I don't that doesn't I think he's looking for a silver bullet there that that isn't there. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are other reasons to favor unicameralism. Namely, can, consistent with what I just said, that it does make it easier to hold people accountable because it's just easier to understand. I, well, well I, it's easier to understand everything yeah. that's happening if if there's a single body with a single group of people who serve for a single kind of term and get voted on a regular basis. I I, I think and that's a good thing, reason to prefer right, unicameral. And where the thing produced by that inst- that institution by that legislature is the thing that they debated, right? They are right. clearly accountable. You can't point to, well, there was some Senate language, there was some House language. I didn't, you know, it's, it's the, the clear lines of accountability yeah. are important. Maybe that's, maybe that's the Ventura insight, Joe. Fair enough. Um, but uh, I so, think so, he's, t- he, yeah. he's setting up a little bit of a straw man to, to be able to castigate some, it, it sounds, that story sounds to me like a person who's looking for a bogeyman, who's did, looking for a bad actor. Did you right? think, did you, and, and I just yeah. don't think that's necessary. Did you think that Jesse the Body Ventura would come up on our first episode for this class? I, I didn't, but I'm delighted that he did. <laughs> uh, one other thing to remark on with states, right, is that unlike, uh, un- unlike the federal legislature, where we have many more times the number of voters in California per senator than we mm. do in Wyoming, Right. There is a Supreme Court case which requires basically one person, one vote, which which in state legislatures uh, that does not apply at the federal level. Right. So Senate districts in states have to be um, of of roughly equal proportion. Right. I guess it's funny to note, too, as the reading does, that most state uh, that most local governments are actually of the unicameral variety. In fact, most local governments are like the UK parliament. Yes. In the sense that the mayor is on the city council. The city council is a legislative body and it and it also has these executive departmental functions. It's got sometimes you've got different city council members responsible for different departments. Mm-hmm. This is how the city of Portland works, for example, Portland, Oregon, where I used to live. And uh and even when it doesn't work that way, even when the mayor is really the one sort of managing the executive, the mayor sits on the council. So it's the mayor is the legislative executive overlap, sort of a prime minister, if you will. And, uh, and, and they're unicameral and they're not, they're almost never bicameral. And they do some adjudicating. 
I mean, local they government, do. local governments true. are really weird because they also will pass on individual permits. So they do some court like right. things. Oh, although most of what they do isn't adjudicative. Most of what they do is legislative and executive. Yeah, it depends on how you define most. And it probably depends on the city and the county. I mean, there are many, many, many governments. Um, and that's a fair point. Yeah. And, and, and there are county governments, not just uh, town and city governments. And, and, and there are districts that are like water district governments, which have right. single purposes or maybe a few purposes. There are tens of thousands of governments. In Isn't the this, we, Nestor Davidson, we had a good conversation yeah. with him about this on our other, on, on our, our podcast. podcast. Yeah. Um, which, you know, hell, if someone's interested, they might want to listen to that. Are you going to have show notes? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll have some show notes so people could, can. You could link them to the Nestor Davidson sure. episode of Oral Argument if they feel like sure. listening to that. We're running a little bit long. Mm, okay. We, we weren't sure how this would unfold, were we? Like, we really weren't. But here we're going along. <laughs> so do you want to do you want to say do you want to save the rest of your thoughts about this specific reading for class, or do you want to try to? I'll I'll shut up for a little while, and you can just kind of no, quickly I'm, I'm run us you through. Have so many or, thoughts. I wasn't I wasn't sure how many you would have, and and what your I, I could do this for hours. <laughs> I love the law. You know that. Yeah, as as do I. So, I mean, the, obviously, I, in, in the readings, there's stuff about the executive branch, the difference between the relatively unitary federal executive, and even there, there's debate about how unitary that should be, how True. much control the president should have over policy. Um, we're seeing that played out, actually, this year mm-hmm. um, in terms of the president's ability to hire and fire and what constraints there are on that. Yep. Whereas in state governments, uh, you have department heads whether it's attorney general or even like in, in Texas, you've got the Railroad Commission, which is has authority over oil, you know, for historical reasons. And the people who... And they are elected. Yeah, right? they are independently elected, by independently, voters. And, which yeah. means that they are not responsible to the to the head of state in the same way the, the governor... Certainly can't be hired and fired. Right. So which is a very direct way to be responsive or not to somebody is they, they can fire you. So there is far from a unitary government in many states. Uh, I don't know what we want to remark about that what, if anything, we want to say about that right now. I just want to highlight that as a, a big difference. It is a big difference, and, and it, has, it has consequences for accountability, as we said. And one of the things that we'll study a little bit later in the course is the, the administrative state and the federal bureaucracy, which is mirrored in the states. The states also have regulations and, and things like that. So, um, you know, you might look at the Constitution, and, and, and many people do, and, and they argue about the, even the legitimacy of the, of the administrative state and say, well, there's the president, and then there are all the people who work for the president, kind of like in a corporation where you might have a lot of departments. But the, a lot of the lawmaking that occurs occurs in the executive branch now, like sure. through the elaboration by agencies of what is contained in statutes, right? But more precise rules are formulated in the, in the agencies. And this is a huge part of the government. And what do we do with that? What do we do with what an agency does in administering a statute? It's going to be a big topic for us. And okay. I'll just put, put a pen in that, as they say now, Joe. Then I talked about courts. Boy, it seems like we could have a whole episode about courts. And in fact, maybe the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole uh, course is kind of about courts. Um, but I, I went through the whole procedure for initiating a lawsuit, um, the structure of the federal courts, structure of state courts, this idea of, of a trial court, an intermediate court, and a Supreme Court, um, the kinds of, you know, burden of proof, standard of, standard of review on appeal. Anything you want to say about that or we should highlight for the students now? Well, I guess the most basic thing to say about it in this context is that uh, it is funny the way you, just, you remarked about how you could sort of organize the whole thing in court. It, it's, if, Go back to where we started the conversation about, you know, law is a, is a byproduct of the facts of people disagreeing 
about what to do when with what resources. The, the sense in which the Anglo-American tradition is, has an understanding of law rooted in the notion of disagreement in the context of cooperation instantly points to two people taking a disagreement to a third person and say, can you tell us what to do? Or get us, can you solve this problem? Can you make a decision about who should do what? Solve the problem, right? That, that is the judge model. And that's why I think the judge plays such a central role in and the judge who is the person in court, right? The decider in court that, that plays such a central role in the Anglo-American legal tradition. It's so core to what we think law is. Yep. That is the solving of a problem in a dispute between two or more people who yeah. are arguing over, you know, you should do this. No, I want to do that. Yeah. Agreed. I think we should end it there.